Let me tell you where this is coming from, what I'm going to talk about t tonight. Um, on the plane coming out here uh, on Friday, I've been up in Seattle for a couple of days. I was rethinking some old thoughts that I had that I thought I would be talking about. And uh, the reason I was rethinking them is because I had been in a conversation with a woman in my church and she had gently criticized uh, something that I say customarily across the country. And I'll tell you later what that was. And the criticism was totally supportive, totally uh, encouraging, not any anger at all in it. And just wondering whether I had the balance right and the way I said it was as helpful as I wanted it to be. And uh, so I, I took away from that a genuine concern that I might not be saying it as well as I could or seeing it as well as I should. And so on the plane for three hours between Minneapolis and Seattle, I began to doodle on my paper. And the result was, was this that you're going to hear. So it... it it got new. I mean, it, uh, I've, re, I've rethought an old thought in such a way that, that I have it on, on six pieces, six sheets of paper here, and, and you're going to get uh, front burner Piper reflections, which is dangerous because they're so fresh they might not be well thought through. But I thought, well, that's what pastors like to do is sit with each other and share their thoughts and, and think through things. So... That's where we're going to go. So let me pray that God would guide us, and, and then I'll, I'll launch into it and try to explain what I'm dealing with. Father in heaven, I, I thank you for these brothers, and, and I ask that you would give them ears to hear and make my mind clear and my voice clear, and that your Holy Spirit would come, illumine me, Bring to my mind those things that would be most helpful to say in this particular setting. I don't know most of these brothers personally, but you know them perfectly. And you dwell in us, and therefore you can cause to come out of my mouth things that would go right to their heart and right to their minds in ways that can help, in ways that I can't even imagine. And so you be the teacher now tonight. You be the illuminer and the encourager and the helper and the comforter and the guider and the provoker and the convictor. So do everything, Lord, that would be good for us and good for our churches and, and good for the neighborhoods and good for the city and good for the nations. We want our lives to count for the glory of Christ and for the good of our people. So I ask for your help in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, um, one of the reasons I do this sort of thing is is listen to what people are saying uh, critically and affirmatively about what I say and what I see in the Bible is because I'm very suspicious, frankly, about my own brain. Um, especially with regard to the great things of the, of the world, the great realities of the world. Uh, I, I don't think the human brain is a very safe place to get ideas. I think this is a safe place to get ideas. I understand that it takes a human brain to process this. 
but to treat the brain, to treat our, our own heads and our own lives as a safe spring from which to draw out wisdom. That's not safe. I'm a sinner and I'm finite. I'm not a good source of wisdom and of knowledge. This is an excellent source, an authoritative source, an infallible source of wisdom and knowledge. So if, if I could get under this and let my brain be saturated with this, then I'd be safe. So I'm, I'm suspicious of me. And therefore, I want very much to be alert to, to seeing the world through other people's eyes. I see, I see the world through very, very culturally colored, piper colored, background colored, genetic colored me eyes. And that means I see a little slice of the world. You see it differently. Everybody sees it differently. And if we could have the privilege of seeing the world through each other's eyes, my, oh, my, what lights would go on inside our heads. So um, since I distrust me about the great things, one of the great things I'm distrustful of me about is the is the reality of love. Love is a great thing. I should note when I started here, if I know when to quit. Okay. Um, the Bible says, now abide faith, hope, and love, these three, but the greatest is? Love. So it's the greatest. So it's the greatest thing, and my poor little brain is supposed to get around the greatest thing and say true things about it. Well, I've been trying to do that for a long time. I've been in Bethlehem for 30 years, and I've been trying to understand the big issue of love in relationship to other big issues. One of the other biggest issues in the Bible is the glory of God. I mean, if you were to pick two big things in the Bible, love would be a big one. God says, I, I mean, he said, John says, God is love. And love is the greatest, greater than faith, greater than hope. So it's really big. And then you trace the theme of the glory of God in the Bible. It's really big. So you get these two mammoth things, love and glory. And I want to know how they relate to each other. And I've been saying it certain ways over the years. And some people don't find the way I say it helpful. She was pointing this out to me. <laughs> so I'm uh, here. Let me do this. I'm going to to give you some texts about eight passages of scripture that create a problem as it's being presented to me. And then I'm going to tell you how I used to say it and the fault that was found with it and the new thought I had about it coming out here. Okay. So let's go to the Bible. You can either listen or you can look them up with me. Uh, I might go through them so fast you might not want to look them up. I'm not sure. We'll see. And here's, I've chosen these texts, eight of them, or is it seven? I think it's just seven. Um, because they are mammoth statements of love. 
and they are all said to be done for the glory of God. And there are people, when you point out to them, God is loving you, God is loving you in this, they like it. And as soon as you say, He's loving you for His glory, it ruins it. They kind of go, there you go again. There you go again. I was just feeling loved and warmly accepted and, and affirmed and embraced by God. And, and you directed it all back to God. And now I feel not loved as much. And I'm trying to figure out what is that? Why? Okay, let me give you the text and see if you have the same kind of response. Uh, let's start before creation with uh, Ephesians 1, 5, and 6 with the concept of God's predestination unto adoption. So we're all, a, if you're a believer in this room, you're a child of God, you're a son of God, and he predestined you for that. So let me read John 1, I'm sorry, Ephesians 1. He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace. Well, I'm glad you feel that way, because not everybody does. I mean, until you get to verse six, it's sounding like he 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 wants me. He's adopted me. He's taken me as his child into his family. And he's done it with a plan before the foundation of the world. And then you get to verse 6 and he tells you why he's doing it. So that you will praise the glory of his grace. Huh. I thought you wanted me. Now it's all for your glory. Hmm. Is that a problem? Number two, Isaiah 43, 6 and 7. This is creation. That was predestination. This is creation. Isaiah 43, 6. Bring my sons from afar, my daughters from the ends of the earth, everyone who is called by my name, whom I have created, for my glory. So he created us. He brought us into being. Presumably, he likes the idea that we exist. Our destiny is that he would be with us and be our God and we would be his people and we would walk together in the cool of the garden in the new age when all the problems of sin are solved. And, and this says... He did it all. I have created you for my glory. So I predestined you in love to be my child for my glory. And I created you in my image to be mine for my glory. Number three. Romans 15, 8 and 9. This. Uh, no, no, no. I'm sorry. I want to I choose another one here. Let's let me do uh, Luke 2.10. You all know this one by heart. Luke 2.10. Behold, I bring you good news. 
For unto you this day is born in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find the baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heaven in the heavenly host, say, say, praising God, praising God and saying what he said. What they say? So, a baby's been born. God has come into the world. God is on a mission to save sinners. God is on a rescue mission to gather a people for himself. And what do they say? Glory to God. Well, what about us? You catch what people are saying? Number four. That was incarnation. So predestination, creation, incarnation. Now let's do uh, salvation, the act of the cross, and go to 2 Corinthians 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 14 and 15. Now this is the centerpiece of love in the Bible, right? When God comes into the world in Jesus Christ and dies for sinners... This is the manifestation of love like never before, like never since. This is love if there was ever love. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 14, One died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that, so now's the purpose, right? That those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Huh. He died for all so that we for whom he died might live for him. So who'd you die for? Yourself? Or us. You, you, you died for us so that we could spend all our time living for you. So it's all about you. Number five. Sanctification. So predestination, creation, incarnation, <coughs> salvation. Now sanctification. Philippians chapter 1, the prayer of Paul in verses 9 to 11. Now, when you pray, you're talking to God. And you're asking God to do things. So when you ask God to do something, he's the doer. And when it says he's doing it for a purpose, it's his purpose. And that's what this does. So let's read uh, 9 and then skip down to 11. Philippians 1, 9. This I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment, so that, now I'm going to skip down to verse 11, so that you may be filled, are you with me? Filled with the fruit of righteousness, which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. So shorten this down now. God, I'm praying for the Philippians, and I'm asking you that their love would increase because you increase it 
with knowledge and discernment because I want them, I want you to fill them with the fruits of righteousness. And the reason you will want to do that is so that it will be to the glory and praise of God. So God, sanctify them for yourself. Sanctify them for the glory of God. Is sanctification an act of love? It is. God's loving us when he makes us holy. He's loving us when he makes us holy. And it says he's doing it for his glory. And I'm telling you, there are people who don't feel loved when you talk like that. They say you're ruining it. You're ruining it. You you say he's loving me, and then you turn around and say he's doing it for his glory. That doesn't feel like love to me. Number six, propagation. So we've just had predestination, creation, incarnation, uh, salvation, sanctification. Every one of them, massive acts of love on God's part toward us. And all of them for his glory. Two more, propagation. I'm thinking here, um, for example, of uh, Romans 1.5. Romans 1.5. I've got a whole slew of texts written down here, like Psalm 96, Numbers 14, Malachi 1, uh, and so on. But let's just do Romans 1, 5. We, Paul says, we received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name. So, Paul gets a grace and an apostleship from the risen Christ. And the risen Christ says to him, you're mine, and I'm sending you to the nations, the Gentiles, to take my gospel for the sake of my name. Now, is the spread of the gospel an act of love in the world? It's a massive act of love in the world. And it's all for the glory of King Jesus, according to chapter 1, verse 5 of Romans. One more. Consummation. So, predestination, creation, incarnation, salvation, sanctification, propagation, and consummation. You didn't know there could be so many Asians, did you? There can be. Consummation. This is Second Thessalonians chapter one, verse nine. Second Thessalonians chapter one, verse nine. I'm focusing on the second coming. I assume that the second coming for the bride is a great consummating act of love toward us. Oh, for the day when this veil of tears would be over. All the suffering, all the injustice, all the unrighteousness, all the pain, all the cancer, all the leukemia, all the arthritis, all the sore throats, all the broken marriages, all the wayward kids. Over. Home. We're home. That's a great day. That's a great day. And that's, that's what's being described here. So listen, how? Why, why is he coming? Verse 9. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord. He's talking about unbelievers. They will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord, from the glory of his power. When he comes, 
comes. Verse 10. When he comes to be glorified in his saints. On that day. And to be marveled at. Among all who have believed. So why is he coming? He's coming to be marveled at. He's coming to be glorified. Is it an act of love that he's coming? It is an act of love that he's coming. And there are people who don't feel it that way. That's the issue. That's the issue. So let me try to pose some questions here and and then give some answers if I can. Is the divine creation and affirmation of our worth eternally and fully satisfying? And I'm not denying that it exists. Is the divine creation and affirmation of our worth eternally and fully satisfying to us? Or is God fully satisfying to us? Now, I was talking to this woman whom I love and admire. I wouldn't have taken her so seriously. She'll probably watch this video. So I'm, I'm speaking with respect. Um, she said, you know, John, you've said so often across the country and at Bethlehem um, this question. Do you feel more loved by God because he makes much of you or do you feel more loved by God because he frees you to enjoy making much of him forever? I've asked that question Dozens of times across the country to provoke people with God's God-centeredness. She said, when you say that, it sounds like you don't believe God makes much of us. Could it be, John, that not only does he make much of us, but that knowing that he makes much of us is and should be part of what it is to be loved by God and is precious and shouldn't be minimized. Okay? So if one of your parishioners said that to you, what would you do with it? I, I affirm it. I mean, seems true to me. So I, I have never meant in asking the question, do you feel more loved by God because he makes much of you or because he frees you from sin and self-centeredness to enjoy making much of him? I've never meant in those two to deny the first one is real. I'm trying to get at What's the bottom of your joy? What's the root foundation of your 
joy. So let me try to clarify. I'm talking to her. I'm talking to you. I'm talking to myself. I'm trying to rethink how to say this in a way that gets it more biblically helpful, more biblically right, balanced, full. Let me affirm loud and clear, God Almighty makes much of us who do not deserve to be made much of. And let me tell you what I mean. I mean this. He is going to say one day to imperfect pastors, well done, good and faithful servant. The only kind of pastors that there are are sinners. The only kind of pastors that there are is those who do C plus, C minus, B minus jobs. I never met an A plus pastor, especially in the mirror. Nevertheless, since they're only that kind and somebody's going to hear it, we're going to hear, well done. C.S. Lewis has a sermon, Alan Jacobs calls it his most famous and best sermon, called The Weight of Glory. You know what the weight of glory is in C.S. Lewis's sermon? It's hearing the words, well done, good and faithful servant. He said, you cannot imagine what it will be like. For the creator of the universe to endorse you. You, you. you won't be able to bear it. It will be so heavy. The glory of that moment of God affirming our life and ministry will be overwhelming to sinners. So there's one illustration of God making much of us. Secondly. He has adopted us into his family. God Almighty has a family. He has kids. You love your kids? You do anything for your kids? He's our father. We, we were nothing. We were lying in the street, weltering in our blood, Ezekiel 16 says. And he comes along and he picks us up, worthless that we are, cleans us off, forgives us, puts us in the family, grows us up. And then you add to that, he makes us fellow heirs with his own divine son. And what do you inherit when you are made the heir of God's son almighty? Everything. You are the heir. You're the heir of the world. Now, right here, I'm tempted to preach on the prosperity gospel. (laughs) Which I abominate. Okay? You get this? But I wasn't invited here to preach on... Well, I could preach on anything I want, I suppose, but... (laughs) When I say... When I say... That we are heirs of the world. Heirs. The meek shall inherit the earth. What do you have? You remember in in 1 Corinthians 3. Where the people are saying. I'm of Paul. I'm of Apollos. I'm of Cephas. And Paul writes and says. What are you doing? Boasting in man. All things are yours. Whether Paul or Cephas or Apollos or the world or life or death. All things are yours and you are Christ and Christ is God's. Get over it. 
Stop boasting. And I got Paul as a teacher. I have something. He says, what? You have everything. So you don't need to boast about having Paul. So if you have everything coming to you, because remember, he said, you have everything. You have death. You want that gift? Early? In the lion's coliseum? Under a sword like Paul? You want that? If, if you want to share the sufferings of Christ, you do, maybe. The prosperity gospel takes a truth and makes it come too early. Of course we're going to have everything. Everything. But not now. And we're not intended to have it now. We take the gospel to the world at great cost. We suffer to bring people. We don't kill to bring people. And we don't drive the finest cars and live in the finest hotels and fly our finest jets to the poorest countries, built them for a billion dollars and come home and live in our mansions on the coast of California. And our wives walk away from us. Last week. You know what I'm talking about. And he says, I won't let anything stop my ministry. And Rick Warren, bless his heart, tweets on Twitter, maybe that's why she left. I don't like the prosperity gospel. Close that chapter. I'm going to, that's a parenthesis. What I'm, what I'm saying here is that God makes much of us. And he does it by making us heirs, co-heirs with Christ. And Christ owns everything. Therefore, we will be co-owners of everything. I mean, can you believe what it says in Revelation 3.21? It says, Jesus talking to the last church. Which one is it? I can't remember. Philadelphia, maybe, or whatever that last church is of the seven churches. He said, those of you who conquer will sit with me on my throne as I sit with the Father on His throne. That's scary talk. I mean, that's almost heresy. What? You mean I'm going to be God? And there are people that go there, right? We're going to be gods. We're going to be a God. We're going to be deified. Whatever it means, I will be a co-ruler. Yes. Don't you know that you will judge angels? Paul says, First Corinthians 6, you will judge angels or um, he rejoices over us with great singing. Zephaniah 3.17. Or he says, you are of more value than many sparrows. So all that to say, to concede, to lift up anything that I've minimized and say, yes, God makes much of us. So that when I ask the question, do you feel more loved that he makes much of you or that he frees you from sin in order to enjoy making much of him forever? I don't mean to minimize that. So what do I mean to do? I mean, why? Why do you even talk like that? Don't you run the risk of poo-pooing something that's really precious in the Bible by asking that kind of of question. The other problem with my question, besides making it look like I didn't 
value being made much of by God is that the second half of the question, enjoy making much of God, includes in it that this God is the very God who makes much of me. So what I'm making much of in God, part of what he is, is that he makes much of me, which creates a huge danger. Here's the question. In your making much of God, if you focus on the fact that he makes much of you, is your making much of God really just a making much of you? Is the reason you like God is because he likes you? Is the reason you are praising God is because he praises you? And so that your praise of him is really praise of you? That's what I'm concerned about. That's what I'm concerned about. Now, um, I think that the reason those seven passages of Scripture, and they're just typical of the whole Bible, are written the way they're written and happened the way they happened is to keep us from making that mistake. The reason every time a great work of love happens in the world, the Bible says he does it for his glory, is to keep us from letting our joy, our excitement, our significance rest on being made much of. As the bottom of our joy. As the end point of our joy. It's not wrong to be glad that you're made much of. It's not wrong. It wouldn't be revealed to us as good news if we weren't to hear it and like it. The danger is that we may hear it, like it, and stop on it. And say, oh great, I'm the goal of the universe. God does everything and it stops right here. Oh, I feel really good. Is that a good thing to feel good about? Satan thought so. This is really tricky. This is really subtle. God makes much of us. So that we will see him as the kind of God who is extraordinarily gracious to make much of nobodies like us so that we admire him more. Well, let me put it like this. I think the Bible accomplishes two things in revealing God's love in the context of his doing it for his own glory. Two things are accomplished. Number one. He rescues us from God-belittling idolatry of putting our joy finally, finally and decisively in being made much of and having ourselves as the bottom of our joy. I think every time the Bible says something wonderful about the way God treats us, it adds for his glory so that we will be cut off from the idolatry that makes ourselves the bottom of our joy. That where I really stand, my final standing place to be happy is me. 
and how valuable I am and how precious I am to God. That's my final standing place. And I'm arguing it's not wrong to be there. But if that's your final standing place, if that's the bottom, if that's the ultimate deepest foundation of your joy, which it is for the flesh, for the devil, you're not saved. What happens when you're converted is that God becomes your ultimate treasure. God becomes your ultimate joy. God becomes the final, deepest, strongest, fullest, most satisfying foundation of our joy. And our being made much of is part of the revelation of the kind of gracious father that we have. That's the first thing that I think this accomplishes. The other thing that I think it accomplishes is this. When, when those texts and hundreds of others like them reveal that God loves us for his glory, it leads us out of ourselves, out of joy in self into an infinite greatness that really satisfies the soul. Let me put it this way. Suppose God loves you enough, and he does, to glorify you, Romans 8.30, those of me justified, he glorified, to glorify you so that one day you shine like the sun in the kingdom of your father, which you will, according to Matthew 13. Our faces will be so radiant, it'll be like sun, and nobody can look at them. You will have to have new eyes to look at anybody. Because everybody's face is going to be so bright, it'll be like the sun, and you can't look at the sun with natural eyes. You've got to have redeemed eyes. You've got to have a, a new body to look at anybody's body. Our bodies are going to be so amazingly angel-like and God-like that if we tried to look at each other, we'd be blinded. So you are going to be glorious. Glorious beyond anything you've ever known. Glorious like a galaxy is glorious. All right, suppose that happens, and it's going to happen. And God said, now, here's the final and wonderful experience for you. And he puts up a magnificent mirror in front of you. And says, behold. And you stand there and you look at yourself. Now, my question is, I promise you, you'll like what you see. You will. Will that awesomely glorified human being be sufficient to satisfy your soul? No. Your soul was made for God. He gave you that glorified state. In order that you might know something more of him and have a capacity to see more of him, delight in more of him, be satisfied with more of him. And so it can't be that his making much of us is the final basis of our fullest joy. It can't be. Because no matter how glorious we become, we'll never be great enough to satisfy our own souls. Only God can satisfy our souls. So I um, concluded this on the airplane, and I'll, I'll wrap it up here in the next minute or two, and then we'll take a break and then do some Q&A. 
I concluded this. The love of God that makes much of us for his glory is a greater love than a love that only makes much of us. Let me say it again. A love of God that makes much of us in all the ways that I've said and a hundred times more. A love of God that makes much of us for his glory is a greater love for us than if he only made much of us. That's my argument. Because in making much of us for his glory, he directs our attention out of ourselves as the ultimate foundation to himself. Um, let me use one other illustration before I close that, that I think might be helpful. Um, I have said dozens of times in trying to drive home that the greatness of God is the end of our joy rather than our own self-esteem. I've said things like, nobody goes to the Grand Canyon to increase his self-esteem. And yet people go to the Grand Canyon. So why do they go to the Grand Canyon? If self-esteem is the source of happiness, why do they go? Because you feel little by the Grand Canyon. You don't feel big. You feel little. In fact, you feel precarious. What, what if somebody said to me, and here I'm trying to correct myself. I'm trying to say it better. What if a young woman said to me, well... What you're leaving out is this. When God brings me to the Grand Canyon to see the depth and the width and the ancient greatness of his glory, and he sets me on the edge, if I spend my whole afternoon worrying that I'm going to fall in, I'm not going to see anything. So I need something more than a glimpse of greatness here. I need some arms around me. I need to feel safe. That's a very helpful observation. Because I can maybe give a lopsided presentation of God that he's like a Grand Canyon. He's like the Alps. He's like the Himalayas. What a satisfying gl glimpse of glory. And, and this poor, fragile, beat up person who grew up in an abusive home is feeling so insecure and so unaccepted and so unloved they don't even see anything can't see anything they're just scared does he care for me so to make the picture complete you have to say this God is the kind of God who is a Grand Canyon he is the Alps. He is the Himalayas. He is the Pacific Ocean. He is a galaxy. And he is a very tender, kind, loving friend and father. And he draws near to you and he puts his arms around you. And he will never, never, never let you fall in. He won't ever let you fall in. He would never push you over the edge. He won't let anybody push you over the edge. You can walk over the edge. He can dangle you over the edge one mile straight down. And you can be totally secure. And if she could ever relax there, 
She just might see the canyon. She might see the canyon. Might take a while, right? Five years, maybe. Ten. Twenty. You got people like that in your church. Some of them are ready. Boy, just show me the canyon. Preach. Show me the mountains. And you got others who are so beat up. They just wonder, is he about to squish me? Tell me something. Tell me something about his making much of me as a, a father and putting me on his knee and getting his arm around me and telling me he's not going to kill me because of what I've done. So here's the upshot. I'll say this sentence and pray and, and we'll take a break. Um, you are precious to him. And the greatest gift that he has for you is not to let that preciousness become your God. But rather, he becomes your God. Let's pray. Father, I, I pray... For my, myself first. Preachers have a, a huge responsibility to say things in a biblically balanced and a biblically appropriate way that helps as many people as possible, guards from as many errors as possible, embraces as many truths as possible, touches as many broken lives as possible. So, Father, I plead with you, grant that I would get things clear and that these brothers in their preaching and in their churches would be faithful expositors of the scriptures and that the people would be helped. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.